0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast. I'm your host, David Gidali, and this is episode 18. My guest today is Adam Stern. Adam is the founder and CEO of Artifact Studios in Vancouver. Artifacts is responsible for VFX in many TV shows and films, including Quantum, Almost Human, Falling Skies, The Men in the High Castle, Minority Report, The Magicians. Most recently, they did Weird City, which I was on set visual effects supervisor on. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me to work with them. I loved being on that set and I loved seeing their results of their work. And um, I'm very honored and privileged to have Adam on my show. And in addition to him being the founder and CEO of the company, he's also a director, which makes him an ideal guest on this podcast. And I'm so glad we had him. We talked about how he balances out the job of a owner of a VFX shop and also still finds time to write and direct his own short films. His latest short, FTL, had a great festival run. It's a sci-fi full of visual effects. I think he said he had more than 200 visual effects shots in uh, a 15-minute short, which is pretty incredible. Of course, the VFX was done by Artifacts, so in a way, the short both represents his skills as a director and also Artifacts' abilities as a VFX company. We talked a lot about that, about how he came about to do this short and uh, what led to it, uh, what kind of sacrifices he had to make along the way to be able to do that, and what is his advice for people in his position or what he would have done differently in his uh, journey. So, I think it's a great episode, and uh, I can't wait to start, so I'll just go right to it. Without further ado, I give you episode 18 of the Post Post Podcast. So, Adam Stern, welcome to the Post Post Podcast. How are you? Uh, I'm good, and thanks for having me. This is fun. So, you're here visiting LA for a few days from Vancouver, which is where you're from.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And you are... uh, Well, why don't I let you uh, introduce yourself in a few words?
1: Sure, okay. Uh, Well, uh, yeah, uh, my name is uh, Adam. I'm uh, from Vancouver and um, have been living in Vancouver For about 30 years now, actually, I moved from the east coast of Canada uh, back in the very late 80s. uh, And then for the past uh, couple of decades, I've been working in film and television in Vancouver, uh, primarily in visual effects, but lots of other interests as well. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And... um We also got a chance to work together on on one project. Yeah, on a a pretty cool
1: show. It was uh, great to sort of uh, to meet you and work with you on that. It was, um, yeah, a project uh, I guess co-created by Jordan Peele and Charlie Sanders uh, for YouTube called Weird City, which was uh, wildly weird and fun. And uh, I guess you were down here working on it, and we were up in Vancouver doing the visual effects.
0: And uh, yeah, I had a great time here uh, in LA and it was uh it was a lot of fun and i got i s really enjoyed- you know meeting you guys in Vancouver before we started and uh and and especially seeing the final jo- the final work you guys have done on the show is incredible
1: oh that's great and, well thanks uh, yeah we have it we had a great team on it and it was a, it was definitely a fun project to work on and it was also very comforting knowing that you were on the ground
0: down here making sure that we were getting the stuff that we needed so that all worked out really well actually thanks and i was uh yeah definitely uh glad to hear you guys uh didn't uh, didn't tear out your hair, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know? Seeing the stuff that came from here, it no was hair tearing. Gonna... Yeah, all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, hope every project goes like that.
1: And um... you know, I have to say, you know, just just to to uh, as a footnote to that that. Um, there are a few projects, and we still talk about this at Artifacts, that went, have gone as smoothly as that project went, and I say that absolutely sincerely. Uh, you know, it was great working with you. The creative team on it um, were great to deal with. It just went really smoothly, and it sort of it made a couple of the the, the following projects that much harder because <laughs> you know they went sort of as as a lot of these projects do. There's you know there's deadlines and stress, and you're trying to work it all out, and there's lots and lots of work to do.
0: This one just really went well. Yeah, great. Well, I'm happy to hear, and I'm um, hope the next ones uh, will be uh, just as great and absolutely uh, fun. Uh, And I always love being in you know in Vancouver. This is uh, I think maybe the fourth or fifth time that I that I went there. I sometimes do. um, I supervise. It's usually things that are shot there that the post is done here or somewhere else. And that was traditionally the way
1: a lot of stuff happened over the years. Now there's a lot more post, well, certainly a lot more visual effects being done in Vancouver. Uh, We're seeing a lot of projects that are shot anywhere, but certainly stuff that now is shot both in Vancouver and here in Los Angeles uh, where the post uh, is more maybe still done in LA, but a lot of the visual effects now comes back or stays in Vancouver. So that's an interesting one.
0: So can you talk a little bit, because I know that Artifacts has been around for quite a while. I remember you saying that it's actually been there before the big influx of VFX work yeah. into Vancouver. So how how is it for you, like if you go back in 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 the time timeline and, and you know talk from your experience of having a, owning a VFX shop there? Sure. Um, when did you start
1: Artifacts? So Artifacts, you know, is officially officially started in 1997. So it's an old man wow. uh, like me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I the first thing I would say in that regard is really I had n- no idea what I was getting into from the perspective of uh, business. So I mean, yeah, I, it started way back then, but but really I started it as sort of a place for me to work. It was kind of like, I'm going to start a little studio and and it'll be me. And I had one other person helping me. And, uh, uh, you know, just trying to get some work. And at that time, you know, very little visual effects work was being done in Vancouver. Um, and um, yeah, I really had no idea what I was getting into uh, be- between now and then, you know, we went from basically one person and then two people and then five and then nine and then we were sort of 9 10 11 for a little while and now we're over 40
0: um well, so there's a there's definitely I want I want to ask you a little bit about the growth from being, you know, a small studio with nine people to 30 or 40 but yeah. before that I'm curious you just mentioned kind of briefly, you know, you you decided you want to do VFX and and you Know for that you opened a studio, but that's right. kind of unique. Like, most yeah. people, it's not something <laughs> yeah. that most artists are like, Oh, I want to do VFX, yeah. so I'll start a studio. It's yeah. usually I'll join a studio, or yeah, so absolutely. How, how do you explain that? Why, what made you decide to do
1: that? <laughs> partly, partly from idiocy, partly because I had no idea what I was doing, partly also because there really weren't that many places and opportunities in Vancouver at the time to become a visual effects artist. This was still kind of a new thing. I mean, there was essentially There were two companies that I can think of, maybe three at the time. Um, There was really no big feature work or anything like that happening in Vancouver on the visual effects side. Things were being shot there. Um, So I was kind of like, well, you know, I want to not just do visual effects. I want to do other stuff. I'm not really sure what yet. I like graphics. I like design. Um, So... uh, Yeah, I basically started it and started looking for work. And the first work that we really got that was significant was I had a friend at the time that was working doing uh, screen graphics and playback for the X-Files. And... And... uh One of the episodes of The X-Files was written by an author that I'm a huge fan of, William Gibson. Um, And he said, hey, I know you like this guy. Do you want to do some graphics for me? And that really sort of started a ball rolling. We ended up doing a bunch of screen graphics for X-Files and then some other shows on Fox. And it went from there. But yeah, it was really touch and go because, you know, other artists that have started companies, spent time at a larger company first and made those contacts and all that. And I really uh, didn't have any of that background. So in the end, it was probably a harder start. It It took a number more years than others would have taken.
0: So when your friend uh, reached out to you about that uh, yeah. X-Files episode, sorry, yeah. we can mention there's a dog here yeah. that's walking Hi, around sorry. and <laughs> <laughs> we're petting her. Yeah, I'm getting some <laughs> affection, which is great. Yeah, she's uh, she, it's, a, it's her <laughs> first experience uh, being part of this podcast, too. Oh, so there and, you uh, go. Okay. So I uh, <laughs> should invite her, too. Um, you mentioned your friend who uh, who talked to you. Was he part of a post production house or anything like no, that? No, he worked or?
1: actually for the production. So he was the playback coordinator for the X Files. So I mean, at the time, that meant that his job uh, for a lot of the time was, you know, making the computers work on set and syncing them. You know, syncing tube uh, CRT uh, monitors to camera, managing all that kind of stuff. You know, when one of you know when when Fox Mulder typed an email, he needed to make sure something something showed up on the screen. And he had all these tricks that he would do with uh, animation, so they could type whatever they wanted on the on the keyboard, right. but it would look like stuff was actually typing. And so that was the bulk of my first work. And then he ended up, you know, bringing a lot more work to us and hired a few guys. And it wasn't visual effects, but it was kind of like you know visual effects light. We were making all these screens and graphics, and what's now known as FUI or interface design, like yeah. which is much bigger now. At that time, it was uh, it was a good intro to that whole world.
0: Yeah. That's cool. So basically, that was kind of the the initial growth. Uh, yeah, of, of artifacts.
1: Absolutely, and um, I was constantly campaigning though and trying to see if we could get work. Um, getting into pure visual effects sh- sh- work, and the first stuff that we did was for the TV show The New Adams Family, which was um, one of the other shops in Vancouver. One of the big shops was run by a guy by the name of uh, John Gadecki. He had GVFX, which and they were they were in Toronto and Vancouver, and they were doing a lot of television work. And um, they asked us if we wanted to come in and do work on the Adams Family, and so. Uh, it was really interesting at the time because we were working on, you know, PCs and Macs, uh, After Effects, that kind of stuff. And I remember one of the supervisors coming at one point saying, you guys are using, like, Macs to do this? Like, how? And because they were all SGI still. Right. And no one, you know, you were using a flamer. You weren't really doing visual effects. And, <laughs> and we're like, well, we can do it. And, uh, you know, it might take an hour to transfer one shot over to the hard drive or whatever, but we were doing it. Um, and that was sort of the first go, go around at that. But, you know, we were actually had to hide the fact we were doing it on Macs and PCs from the clients a lot of the time back then.
0: Yeah. Because it was, I remember flame used to be this, uh, I don't know if it still is, but like yeah. this kind of, uh, brand, uh, brand suit if you don't have it.
1: Oh yeah. It's like you weren't a real shop unless you had Flint's flames and Inferno's, you know, right. And, uh, w- there was no way, I mean, you know, Inferno's cost a million dollars, you know, for one artist to sit in front of one. I was like, yeah, That's we're not crazy. doing that. <laughs>
0: that's uh that's awesome and and i'm still kind of scratching my head around the whole thing of like there was no there weren't many shops doing VFX so you decided to open one that's like <laughs> it took me uh, maybe 10 years of uh, being uh, an artist working yeah. in companies realizing that like, I'm I not sure it was the,
1: the right decision you know certainly by any stretch of the imagination if I could go back and do it all again um, I certainly would have seen if I could go work for somebody but I was you know uh, partly ignorant partly arrogant partly you know I want to do this on my own I, I had been working for other people prior to that I had, I was working in multimedia and I did was working and editing and doing graphics for a local television show on sort of like a local cable station, right. and so I my big thing at the, that point was I want to be my own boss, and I was adamant about that. And so, whether was it the right decision, I have no idea. But you know, but
0: I think yeah, you, you kind of hit it in uh, on the head when you said you know it, it was ninety seven, and uh, the the scenery was different in terms oh, yeah. of like shops and what they were able to do and the whole thing. I mean, Jurassic park just came out four four years earlier or something like yeah. that. So yeah. the whole world of CGI was a lot, uh, a lot more empty. It really um, was. Yeah. And I, I think I've heard that you went to school for music, and yeah, Berlin? that's right.
1: Yeah, so I actually I, I came to all of this very in a very circular fashion because um, I actually uh, yeah went to school. I went to Berkeley and Boston, studied music, um, and part of that was studying electronic synthesis. So at the time, you know, I was using some of the first Mac Pluses and all that kind of stuff in music and learning what you could do with them, and I love that, and I, I, I still love it, and I still you know I've got my own studio at home where I compose and I. I score stuff for my own projects, um, but uh, that had introduced me to the Max for visual stuff, and so you know I think I really kind of my interest was peaked in oh what what can you do with the computers visually, and so sort of back then it was extremely primitive. I mean the screens weren't even color yet. Uh, but uh, that there I'm really dating myself. But, um, you know, I really liked, you know, putting together vector graphics and figuring all that stuff out. So um, when I first moved out to Vancouver, I was actually still in music and I was performing. I had a small recording studio. I did a couple of tours, actually, as a sideman, as a keyboardist. Uh, but, you know, I, the whole music industry thing, certainly as a, as a paid player, uh, I wasn't thrilled with the whole thing in the end, and when it was looking for other stuff to do. Right, and, and that's when you kind of
0: migrated into graphics. Exactly, or yeah. Shifted, yeah. Um, cool, and I, um, I'm curious because basically one of the reasons I I wanted to have you on the podcast is uh, besides the fact that you own a, a VFX studio, and I think you're probably the first uh, guest that I have that owns, unless you count Wes Ball, but you know we had a, it was really just him. If, you know, till he became right. uh, yeah, yeah. A, a huge director. Yeah. Um, is because uh, I find it interesting that you managed to uh, be able to balance uh, your time between managing a studio that has, you said, 35 and 40 people. Yeah. Um, and also uh, pursue a directing career simultaneously. Um, and I remember you talking a little bit about it when we were uh, sitting together uh, a few, mo- few months ago, I guess, or maybe even more maybe, than a year maybe ago. even a year or so, yeah. 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 Uh, and I was like, right, that sounds like, that sounds like an ideal scenario in in my mind where, you know, you have a company that you, you know, that, that works that you can supervise, but it kind of manages itself to a certain extent. And then you can use the rest of your time to, uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it. if it works, I think it is an excellent, um, situation. So agreed. I think for me, it's only taken... Trying to figure out the moving pieces of the visual effects company and making it as f- as as uh, uh, smoothly functional as possible took many many years. So I know that um, you know to answer that question, I'd sort of go back and say, okay, you know, there was a time when I couldn't think about anything else, and that time lasted many many years, if not yeah. you know more than a decade, and it was it was challenging and it was stressful and I was certainly um, I was the front man for the company not only on set for projects but also with the clients Uh, there were many projects where I was functioning both as the visual effects producer and supervisor managing all the artists Um, and but it was when I sort of started to become less of a control freak and start letting go of those roles and finding good people uh, that could take on those responsibilities Uh, And getting into the mindset of how important that was to be able to delegate and start building a team, uh, as opposed to just having a bunch of people that you were sort of directing constantly. Yeah. That changed everything for me. So um, it seems obvious and it certainly seems self-evident now, but it took many years for me to figure that out. And um, now I'm at the point where we have such an excellent team of people all the way through the company from now. uh, I don't really supervise anymore we've got an excellent visual effects supervisor Rob Geddes and an excellent visual effects producer Sean Gilhooly who you worked with Um, and but from them to the coordinators to the artists to the leads and supervising compositor all that kind of stuff um I can let my attention waver. Uh not from the bigger picture of steering the corporate ship, and i st- I still need to be involved in that and making sure that the company is uh functional on an administrative level, but uh I don't need to spend every hour of every day thinking about it anymore. And so now I can sort of pursue other um opportunities. You mentioned directing and that's a big one that you know we've talked about that I'm I'm working on. Um knowing that the visual effects company is not only really highly functional uh, but it's also now become a significant asset to me because I can come to the table with like look at this thing that I have, that means that I have absolute confidence on set that we can take care of the visual effects as which is, tends to be a stress point on many other productions, it's just not
0: for, for me. Right, you know? so I have a few questions, I guess part, The the first part is I guess a two part question which is when you mentioned it took about 10 years to be able to get to the point where you have enough time to to be able to to try on this, you know, or sure. like spend more energy in, in directing. What happened in the beginning of those 10 years that made it such a hard kind of challenge over that 10 years? And what happened at the end? I know you mentioned at the end, it's just like you kind of reached your realization that you don't have to be such a control freak. And yeah, you can hire yeah. more people and rely on them. Yeah. I'm curious what led to that realization. But before that, I'm also curious what, uh, made running the company such a um a challenge in the first place. And I think it might also relate to growing as a company, right? And uh
1: absolutely growing as a company, uh, myself growing as a person recognizing that I was running a business. And I think that, that if I go back sort of at the beginning of that sort ten of year ish period, um I think that's one of the biggest points and this is um I I always think back to I was uh very stressed out. I was dealing with clients, not only creatively, but, you know, trying to make sure the money was coming in and doing all of that stuff. And I was with my wife in a bookstore and she walked up to me with a book and she said, I think you should read this. And, um, it was, it's funny. I'm trying to remember the title of the book right now and it'll come to me. But, um, I said, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't read self-help books. I don't read business books. I'm just not interested. And she's like, I opened this book and I read the first chapter of it and it's describing exactly what you're going through. You need to read this. And uh, when I opened the book, it described someone that opened a pie shop because they loved making pies. And, you know, that's like, okay, well, that makes sense. And I read a few more and it's this its this great sort of uh, analogy that um, if you start a business to do the thing that you love, what you don't understand is that you have to manage the business, not the thing that you love anymore. And if you're not prepared to have that sort of split in your thinking, realizing that you're owning a business and running a business, you're going to be stressed for years. You know, you have to put the effort into that and realize you're no longer the pie maker. You're the business owner. And, you know, it's, again, it's one of these things that might sound obvious, but I was like, wow, it sort of blew my brains out, like, completely exploded my way of thinking. And I was like, okay, I need to concentrate on the business now and stop trying to be the guy that's Literally, I was doing particle systems for shots, I was compositing shots, I was supervising, I was producing, I was, you know, um, I just, it just had to stop. Um, So that was a big moment for me. And at that point, I think I started to very consciously try to find people that would take over so I could concentrate on the business. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know if that, that's a long-winded answer, I don't know if that answers the question, but it was, that was huge for me, is realizing, okay, here I am, for better or worse, I own a business, and I better figure out how to run it properly, or I better better
0: close it down. You know? And uh, as a business, when you moved from having, you know, several, like, less than 10 employees yeah. to... You know, was there a moment where you were, there was a big job that forced you to expand suddenly? Or can you talk a little bit about... Yeah.
1: Um, so, I mean, we were sort of cooking along in the sort of twenty early 2010s, I guess, um, working on stuff in independent feature here, uh, a sequence on a larger feature there, and we were doing television work. Um, I think probably one of the big points uh, for us was around 2012 or so, Um, So not that long ago, I guess about seven years ago, where um, I was actually on set supervising a film that we were doing called The Possession. It was an interesting horror film Um, and um, we were still probably around 10 or 11, maybe 12 people at that time. Uh, and I started to hear about this project from various people on the crew and uh, uh, knowing that I liked science fiction and all that kind of stuff. And people were saying, you know, you should look into this new project that's going to shoot here, I think, next year. And it's it's this really cool sci-fi TV thing. It's called Continuum. and You should check it out. Hmm. And... Um, and I learned about the project and it was right down my alley. I'm like, oh, that sounds like something that I, you know, I, I would really love to do that. And then sort of all of these sort of little coincidences started happening. Um, I got a call from, um, or actually was an, an, I was in a production office um, talking about another project. And um, in the hallway, I walked by um, a director that I'd worked with previously on shows. And he said, I want to talk to you about a new show that I am executive producing. And it was the same show. It was Continuum, and then he sent me the scripts. And anyway, long story short, after uh, I pitched for us to work on the show, and um, and we didn't get it. And I have never done this before. I called back the next day and said, I want to come in and pitch again. And they sort of laughed and said, okay. And I came in and we got it. (laughs) Really? Wow. Um, So it uh, it was great. And then that show went for four seasons. It really, I think, helped us refine the way that we approached visual effects, especially for television. We grew the team around it. Um, we at the same time, we started working on Falling Skies uh, for Amblin, and we we then started picking up work on... We were working on uh, Almost Human for Fox. And so we sort of started to do a lot of this sci-fi TV thing, and it all kind of just started to grow from there.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Do you know why uh, the first pitch didn't work, and then the second one the day yeah, after? Yeah,
1: well, what, it, what I hadn't realized is there was another company that was essentially locked in for the deal. And so the director that I knew is a guy by the name of Pat Williams he's a great uh, director I've worked with on a, on a bunch of projects television stuff um, he called me in because I think he liked the idea of us working on the show together uh, at least thats I'd like to hope that that's what he was thinking. <laughs> um, but I, what I didn't know is there was essentially there was another company that wasn't only in the mix I think that they were the company that always did this production company's visual effects. Oh. So we were kind of the outlier. Um, But what had happened was when I came in on the first pitch and I met the showrunner, a guy by the name of Simon Barry, who's, like, great. He's done lots of stuff uh, over the past years, a number of years. Um, I came in, and I had just, again, coincidentally... uh, been on a walk with my family and had taken a great shot looking back at Vancouver from the Lionsgate bridge in Vancouver. And it's sort of, it was a nice city view and the show is about Vancouver in the future, or at least partly about that. So what I did before I went in on the first pitch is we, I worked with the map painters at artifacts and we made a piece of concept art saying, this is what we think Vancouver 2077 looks like. And it apparently blew them all away. But they had to, in the end, say, "Well, we did say we were going to give it to this other company, so we're sorry. Maybe next time." Right. So that's when I I said, "Well, I want to come back in. This should be our show." And I kind of made an impassioned uh, plea that they should bring it to us. And uh, for whatever the reasons, they decided to do it, and it worked that's out really cool. well for us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but it's, I think it's uh, it's definitely. An important lesson, even the first pitch that you came in with something to show, obviously. Like oh, I a, think that's huge. A uh, yeah. show some sort of uh, co- you know commitment and passion to the project. like yeah. that's uh, that's usually that's a very important thing, I think. In uh,
1: <laughs> I think that's huge, and and we have a similar story on a recent project. But I think you know at, the more that I've done this, the more you sort of realize that. Um, it's not just a matter of saying, hey, thanks for the script. Here's what we think the visual effects cost. Because if that's all the project feels like, yeah, everybody needs to you know, generate revenue and carry on and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's important to show if you actually are passionate about a script or a project on the visual effects side that you sort of show what you think it could be and look like. And the thing I always talk about at Artifacts is we don't have to make this exactly what they think it should look like. The important thing is to show that we're thinking about it. Right. Know, it can always change from there but we want to show hey we're thinking about your script and the visuals and the story and you know here's an idea and the director or showrunner whoever might say well that's crap that's not what I'm thinking but they always sort of get a light in their eye the fact that you took the time to try to figure something
0: out right You know. yeah that's uh, and also I think the fact that you have that kind of filmmaking passion sure. within you is, is uh, you know it, it kind of comes through it's yeah uh
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think that's, uh, we've talked, I know uh, a lot about this as well, but um, I, you know, I think one of the reasons retrospectively that I got into visual effects when I think about it is because of a love for film and storytelling. And so if you you can bring that to visual effects, but also, and and have it shine through in that way, but also it sort of helps guide how you view everything in the work. And, you know, it's important to keep that passion, you know.
0: I think I find it also very useful when you on set supervisor when, when you prep with a director and everything where, where like every problem, every challenge you're facing always has the same, you know, underlying kind of truth of, of what is it, what, what story purpose does it fulfill? Yeah. And if you're, if you don't come from that sort of discipline of, of, uh, thinking like a storyteller and thinking about the, um, the worth of of the of the story beats as opposed to visual spectacle and Absolutely. things like that it really yeah. sets you apart and then you know you know you you're you're, in, you're having the same conversation whereas sometimes um someone else who comes from a more you know design oriented or art oriented kind of uh, point of view they they sometimes miss the point you yeah. know? and and which is also i mean it's great to have that point of view as well um but it I think you the conversation becomes a lot faster when when all the parties are kind of in agree in agreement of what's important
1: what's being served yeah and and, and how is story being served or character being served hundred percent agreed
0: yeah and what needs to be VFX and what doesn't need to be VFX I yeah, think the that's biggest huge. Uh, the biggest the biggest thing I always ask my clients when I uh, when they approach me with questions about a certain effect that they want to achieve is like does it have to be CG like, yeah. is there no way to do it practical because I always think practical you know not in in many cases uh going practical even if it means shooting an element and uh, you know using it and comping it in c g is usually like the 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 most uh you know the surest way to to get a photo real result so absolutely um it's fun it's fun to to work with people and to uh keep reminding them that it's not, the VFX is not all in the computer.
1: Yeah, that's, it's, it's so true. And I mean, it's, I think that the best visual effects supervisors and artists are, are do exactly what you just said, where as opposed to looking at something going, okay, how am I, how can I achieve this in visual effects so we can do it as a cool visual effects shot? It's about looking at the whole thing much more, much more broadly and at a macro level and go, okay, um, not only will these visual effects be erroneous and, and unnecessary, but there's there maybe there is a better way to do it. And to think as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and you're right, nine times mm-hmm. out of ten, if you can get mm-hmm. something in camera or if you can get something practically, even if it's to composite it later, it's going to look way, way better. And there's a lot of times we get pushed um, because a director or a producer or someone has this grand idea for, say, a huge Aerial shot or something, and even in that case, a lot of the times we have pitched. Well, let's find some really good stock or shoot something, uh, shoot an aerial, right. and then make that look like the future. And on certainly, I go back to continuum. But on that show, our most successful work was when we started with real photography. It will always be that. Yeah, you know, renderers get better and visual effects gets more sophisticated, and sure, we can do a lot more stuff. But you don't always need to. And, and relying on photography to, to start you, even to pull clues and hints from the way the photographic process works, whether it's digital or analog or otherwise, it makes everything just look better.
0: I wonder, because it, it makes me think of a shot from your short film, uh, FTL. There's a shot where you see the... Um Launch pads? Yeah, yeah. On the, was that based on an aerial shot? or Absolutely.
1: A- I, I went out myself with a drone and found... I had done a sort of a little location scout, and there's an area near Vancouver that I'm quite familiar with on the way to Steveston um, where... It's sort of every time I've been there, I'm like, hey, I bet you from the from the sky, this kind of looks like it could be like the Cape, and so I went there one day uh, with a drone and I shot those plates. Absolutely, wow. yeah, yeah,
0: that's cool. Yeah. So we're we're gonna talk about that uh, real soon. I just wanted to uh, ask uh, with regards to artifacts and uh, you mentioned like the growth and the. Uh, um, the realization that you're gonna have to think like a like an executive, like like yeah. a business owner, not like an animator. Um, do you ever get back to? Um, do you ever do animation or do VFX? Do you get any? Are you at all kind of missing it in any way? Or?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the the answer to the latter part of it is yeah, I miss it all the time. For a while, I didn't miss it because. I think I was burned out. I think I hit a point where I was trying to do a lot of it. Um, There were times when we were busy that I would literally take on, and Sean still laughs at this, but I would take on We were doing a couple of uh, episodic projects for Nickelodeon and the team was so busy and there was no room to fit anything else in. But I wanted to make sure that we serve serve service the client. So I would take on 20 or 30 shots and just do them in a couple of days and just burn myself out. Um, So I didn't miss it then. That goes back a few years. These days, I'm coming back into it from the perspective of my own films or trying to do R and D for artifacts or things where I can be creative and enjoy the technical aspects of it without feeling the client pressure and, trying to enjoy it more. I didn't enjoy it for a few years, but I certainly miss it now and I'm I'm sort of trying to figure out ways that I can incorporate it into my daily workflow again. Um, And I do stuff like, you know, I certainly will do either tests for projects uh, for my own or otherwise. um, And I've had the opportunity to do some work Just, um, you know, helping at my kids' school, they wanted to put some videos together, so I was able to do a little bit of, you know, title design and motion graphics and stuff and, you know, just keep my fingers in it, which has always been fun. So,
0: just to geek out for a bit, what's your, when you do it for yourself without any, like, client uh, pressure or time, time, what's your uh, tools of choice?
1: Sure. They've changed recently, which is interesting because, I mean, Artifacts is a very standard studio workflow these days, it's, you know, Nuke for compositing, it's Maya for 3D. uh, It's primarily V-Ray for rendering, although, um, you know, we've certainly been experimenting on and off with Arnold and Redshift. Uh, We have a Houdini team. So it's all the sort of stuff that you, everybody's using these days. I came up on After Effects. And although, you know, I, I can and do work in Nuke and appreciate the speed at which you can do it. Um, I still kind of have a soft spot for being able to quickly do comps and after effects. So for me personally, um, I love working in after effects and cinema 4d and a little bit of Houdini. And I, I knew I've, I've used Maya since version 1.0, uh, actually back when it was, you know, power animator and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I I find those tools, for for me as just a a personal user that just wants to do something I'm enjoying, Maya and Nuke have become so big and sometimes unwieldy that I like to just use the old tools that I'm very comfortable with. So I'm not thinking about the tools, I'm just moving quickly and being creative. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, weirdly these days, back a little bit to After Effects and also Cinema 4D and stuff like that. Using Arnold and Redshift as well in Cinema 4D
0: cool and you mentioned also uh, earlier that uh, on your first few jobs you used uh 3d studio max and people were like curious about that did you ever get back to that or was it
1: yeah i mean i it's funny because I, rem- I remember using 3d studio i think it was like version 4 or something when it was still dos or something yeah. anyway release, um, release 4 release yeah. 4 that was yeah. what it was <laughs> um so, no, I mean, not really. We It's interesting. A couple of guys at Artifacts like using it. So, I think in our, one of our subscriptions with Autodesk, we now have it on the floor, but it's rarely used. And I haven't looked at Max in, in years. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time.
0: Hasn't changed much.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's a side, <laughs> yeah. side note. I mean, a lot of people swear by it. And the other thing I'm looking at a lot, too, and I love this idea, is using... Um, because I've also we also used to use Fusion as a studio, so oh, yeah. what Black Magic is doing to me is absolutely fascinating. Because you know you look at the cost of an individual nuke license right now, uh, and it's it's crazy. It's thousands right. and thousands of dollars. So we it's one of my biggest expenses. It is my biggest expense. Uh, other than people and payroll at Artifacts are the software licenses for Maya and for Nuke. We, we literally spend, I think, $100,000 a year now just on maintenance fees. So when I see Resolve and the Fusion toolset and the fact that young artists uh, or whoever can download it for free and have the industry standard color correction platform now editorial as well as a node-based compositor built in, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going to get back to looking at Fusion again, too.
0: Yeah, I remember I think Fusion was my uh first kind of um um you know kind of trajectory out of uh out of the after effects you know yeah, uh, layered yeah. pipeline into yeah. the node base and Fusion was there to like kind of ease my way into something a bit more uh or crazy like Nuke.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, me too. I think I went from After Effects maybe to Shake to Fusion, or Fusion to Shake. Oh, yeah. I can't remember, and then to Nuke. But then when Apple sort of canceled used,
0: Shake, now you reminded me of Combustion for a oh, second. Oh, combustion. Yeah, combustion.
1: Yeah, I used that a little bit. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think I was in, in the army back then. It was like two thousand and.
1: That was early 2000s two thousands
0: for sure. Three or something like that. They yeah. tried
1: to sell that as a mini
0: Flint almost, but yeah, uh, yeah. I remember that because it was a. Uh, Discrete, right. That's or, right. Discrete, I think. Yeah. And Flame was also uh, back then part of the same.
1: Yeah. It was all discrete and then it all became Autodesk. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I think it started as Autodesk, then it became disc- Discrete. Oh, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> and then it went back to becoming Autodesk <laughs> right. or something like that. Yeah. Um, cool. So I wanted to. So now uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about filmmaking. Yeah. So sure. you say, you said before we're going into the newest kind of. Uh, you did two shorts, if I'm not mistaken. That's I'm right. Thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, before talking about those, you mentioned uh, that, you know, the, you're, you're uh, fascinated with, with visual effects and, like, your kind of uh, trajectory there started from a love for filmmaking. So, you started, you, you loved filmmaking from the get-go.
1: Yeah, I would say that I loved film. And, you know, it was interesting, like, as a kid... Um, it never even occurred to me that you could do this for a living. Like I, you know, I was totally a Star Wars kid and all that kind of stuff. And just, and, you know, one of my favorite films was probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I just loved Spielberg and Lucas and all that. I mean, I was so, uh, it was my favorite thing in the world. That being said, it didn't occur to me that I could go do that too, as a kid from, you know, a small town in Halifax. And, uh, you know, it just, I never made that mental jump that i could do this right Uh, so it took me many years to realize that i think um but yeah absolutely i always loved film i loved uh, i've loved photography since i was a little kid i mean i i used to i saved all my money so i could get my first camera i shot film i developed it myself that was all stuff i've absolutely loved doing back in the day and um And so, yeah, it definitely came into it with all of that in mind. And then I think while working on visual effects over the years, while working to service other stories and other people's stories and trying to be part of that storytelling, I realized more and more that I didn't want to just be part of that storytelling. I wanted to tell the stories. And so over the past, I would say probably 10 years, I really started thinking a lot about that. And I've always been writing. So uh, never for any professional uh, reason just writing uh, down my own ideas and outlining ideas for stories and scripts and things like that so I started taking that more seriously about probably eight nine years ago
0: yeah and um, and so what did you do then when you say you started taking it more seriously how did that manifest?
1: Well I recognized from all of the work I had done so to date in visual effects and working on uh, you know projects that uh, that it all absolutely starts with the writing and it starts with you know making sure that you have you know, characters, uh, and an interesting, uh, you know, obviously plot and structure and all that kind of stuff, all the writing stuff, but, but that you had something that was resonant, something, whether it was science fiction or not, you know, in the end, all of that can really just be setting. It was about the characters and their journey through whatever world you were conceiving. Right. So, you know, I'd always had ideas and what I, and so what I did is I actually started outlining, uh, feature scripts and, um, uh, and then started writing them so to date I've got I think four uh, four features in various stages all having gone through multiple drafts all sort of as complete um, and uh, that's sort of how I started and um, it was a very personal private endeavor for probably three or four years just sort of building up my writing to see if it could work if I could understand it what you know seeing what writers went through on the productions that we were on um the challenges that they faced was sort of my film school like sitting in production meetings and concept meetings and seeing how the writers were trying to make sure you know that how story worked sitting in writers rooms watching people break stuff all that kind of stuff
0: so in a way your uh your uh kind of role as as a studio uh owner a vfx studio owner was somehow your your film school or your writing school 100
1: percent. i think it was all of that yeah i think it gave me the opportunity to sort of be surrounded by the filmmaking process but then sort of as i was able to realize i could dig a little deeper and start working directly with showrunners or directors or writers i'm starting to see behind the curtains of how how all that stuff functioned Um, and so yeah absolutely that would that was and is my film school and my my writing school and all of that
0: And, but you say it still was a very private process that you took kind of like, uh, were you doing it? How, what, like describe your days when you were both running a studio and doing that on your own time.
1: So at that point I was still basically, my days were running artifacts and that was all I did. Uh, you know, the writing for me was sort of evenings or weekends or that kind of thing and early mornings a lot, (laughs) excuse me. Um, And so, um, how early? Just curious. uh, You you know, I'd get up at six, and I'd try to get an hour, and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, And starting and today, actually, uh, a few years from then now, (laughs) now a few years later, um, I it's part of my process. I generally sort of in as the writing part of my brain in the mornings. I find. Um, I can think about development and creativity and all that kind of stuff. Generally, when I'm writing pages for something, it's in the day as work. Uh, But anyway, uh, back then, yeah, I would sort of conceive of stuff and think creatively. And then uh, at some point in the evenings or the weekends, I would, you know, try to get some pages down and try to get to first draft and then try to get my rewrites going and all of that. But, um,
0: uh, yeah, I forget where I was going with that. (laughs) But uh, Well, I think the... My, what I, what i find curious is the whole like trying to fit something like that in oh, your so, life which yeah. is which is mostly self motivated like you don't have it an external it ha, yeah it's like fully self motivated yeah. if you don't want to do it nobody's going to you know you know, wait for you at the end of the day. That's like what makes how many- it
1: impossible. It's so hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, I think it's it's uh very, it's impossible, and you yeah. did it. So that's why I'm like.
1: Well, you know, what my thing is, is I I'm someone that uh I know I function better with deadlines, as a lot of us do. I know I function better knowing that there has to be an end goal. So it was really hard for the first few years for me. Then what happened was. Um, it was probably, again, on Continuum that, that I had a bit of a corner turn because I was working on the show. And the showrunner said to me, hey, if you ever have any ideas for anything and you want to pitch me uh, for maybe a new show or something, like, let me know. Because wow. we had that kind of yeah. level of relationship at the time. and so
0: Talk about motivation.
1: Yeah. You know, so like- then something sort of snapped. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to present some of these ideas. And I had one in particular uh, that I pitched him. And he was like, that's cool. All right, so now go home and write you know, a paragraph for each season, one to five. Give me a character bio for each of the main. And he sort of gave me a little bit of homework. So I'm like, okay, well, that's helpful. And I sort of did that stuff. And then what actually happened with that particular idea is he pitched it to uh, a few people, but Amazon bit. <laughs> and, um, and it did end up going into development for a while. It went from Amazon to another network. And... Um, and a pilot script was written. He wrote a pilot wow. on it. So that was my first sort of introduction to, okay, well, wait a minute. I can come up with an idea and mm-hmm. pitch it, and then it can actually have traction. Well, then I'm going to focus on this or do my best to. And that was a very very big turning point for me. That was probably around, I don't know, 2014, 2015. And what he said to me at the time was... Because I said, look, the reason I'm doing this is not just to pitch you an idea that then I can be part of the making of the show. I said, I want to make my own stuff. And he said, okay, well, you know what you really should do? You really should make a short film. Because if you can make a short film and start getting experience directing, and I had done second unit directing. I had been on set so much. I felt that it was something I wanted to tackle. Um, He said, if you can do that and show that you're capable... Uh, if we can get this show going, then you can be part of it at that level. And, right. You know, uh, you have to show you can do it. And uh, that was great advice. Um, so what I did is I, I wrote and directed my first short film, um, which sort of took place ostensibly in the world of this series that I had pitched him. Side characters in this science fiction world. And uh, that... I did that it did the festival circuit uh, it did quite well and
0: then the bug was uh, you know I'd been bitten that was it and that short is called called The Adept The Adept is yeah. that the one that has that that has two people in a kitchen that's
1: exactly it yeah and it was designed and I said you know my first pass at the script there were all these visual effects and whatever and and again kudos to uh, and thanks to Simon Barry the showrunner continuum who said you know because he was he was like I'll read your scripts and you let, let you know what I think And and he's like Pair this down, make it more character-centric, make it about the dialogue and the characters and keep it tight as a two-hander yeah. and, like, let's do that first, you know, don't worry as much about the visual effects. Um, so although it does, in the end, it had about 40 visual effects shots or something, it was really mostly dialogue and my opportunity to get some experience directing two actors. And they're both great actors that had lots of television experience and film experience. So uh, that was also very helpful. They were both people from Continuum.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and then when when uh, when the short came out, uh, what was the reception?
1: So yeah, it was fun, and it was also uh, uh, the reception was really positive. It was the first short that not only I had out as a writer director, but that the team at Artifacts was behind um, our own creative pursuit. So I think it was there was an energetic, positive uh, sort of reception internally at first, and then. Um, we took it out to film festivals, and people seemed to really like it. So it it did really well. It sort of it spent a year uh, going to a lot of genre festivals, uh, met a lot of great people through that. It won a few awards. Uh, it was great. It was really fun, and then we put it online, and uh, also got a great response online. Not huge, but you know, it certainly was. We put it on Vimeo. It was I don't know twenty or thirty thousand views, and then and then it had a little bit of more of a shelf life after that when it went on to dust. But that's sort of another story. Um, but uh, yeah, it was generally positive. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to. As much as I appreciated all the advice I had received from those more experienced than I, I knew that it was time to sort of put my money where my mouth was on the visual effects side and see what we could really bring to the screen. So that was sort of the that was where the next short where
0: FTL came from. FTL means faster than light. Yes, it does. Yes. (laughs) And um, the short is uh, about the first human uh, kind of journey faster than light. Yeah, sort of the basically the first test pilot. Astronaut that goes on a faster-than-light uh, spacecraft and tests it. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a space epic uh, <laughs> opera. The first shot in the film is very uh, kind of sets sets a, sets the tone pretty well. Sets the universe like this kind of sweeping shot around this. Uh I guess looks like a space station but it's really like a dock, right?
1: Yeah, them? it's um it is how um it was the idea is that it's the ISS, the International Space Station, you know, several decades into the future, but now it has sort of a docking system for this experimental spacecraft.
0: Oh, yeah. I see. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I mean it's it's really well made. Oh, thanks. Written and also it it looks amazing.
1: Yeah, we had I mean was- I really uh you know, after After the Adept, and um, both for me and I think for the team at Artifacts, it was, okay, well, um, let's see if we can make a short that, sure, I want to continue trying to explore storytelling and writing and directing, but let's take it up a notch Um, from the production value perspective. Like, how much can we bring to the screen if we took literally the same amount of time that we did to shoot the Adept, uh, but spend a little bit longer in post? And it was still not that long. It was about 12 weeks total uh, on the visual effects. And, uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. And FTL has been a really interesting ride. Uh, No pun intended, I guess. But um, (laughs) that one has had, you know, uh, uh, again, took it out to festivals. Um, So, basically, I think the adept we did in about 2015 or something like that. And then uh, to put the uh, FTL came out sort of late 2017 and then did a year in in festivals. Um, Anyway, it played all over the place it did really well uh, certainly festivals that weren't interested in the adept uh, FTL was getting certainly more acceptances I got to watch it at the Chinese theaters which was a blast on the big screen there and nice. played what was the, uh,
0: in which uh, festival did it uh, that right? was Holly Shorts. Holly Shorts so it did
1: Holly Shorts and it did LA Shorts uh, which was great uh, it, it did Toronto Shorts it won best drama there uh, it did Sci-Fi London it did Philip Dick in New York it did uh, I'm sure I'm missing some really interesting ones it did it had a a really nice little festival run that being said um uh these days i'm not sure i would put a short out on a festival circuit anymore i'm just i don't know like i think oops excuse me uh if i made just made a sound there but um it was great but really where the most interesting stuff ended up happening with the short was online afterwards and so i I know you're a filmmaker and you have a short out right now so I'm, i'm curious i don't know how you feel about that but i almost wish i put ftl
0: online right away Interesting, because I—that's what I did, right? Okay. With face swap, and uh, I talked about my my last guest in in the podcast that was just released. Uh, Sasha also has a short that just uh, that she released into festivals. It doesn't exist online yet, so right. it's doing kind of the same route that yours did. Yeah. Mine, I put it online, so I've had a few shorts in festivals back in two thousand and. Eleven, and then in the two thousand and twelve, and then, and then that's it. But then, my uh, my thought process was with FaceSwap specifically, and also generally that um, the most, uh, like you say, like the 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 biggest splash happens when your short is online and and it gets seen by you know thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Yeah, and that's when people start. You know, that's when you might have actually reach some producers and some people who might actually like reach out to you and, and be interested about working with you on the short. So that's, that was my experience with my shorts before yeah. so the ones yeah. that went to the festivals did, did well. And I've had a lot of interesting conversations and met a lot of interesting people. Yeah. And, uh, and it was fun watching it on a big screen with a, uh, with an audience, which is something that you don't really get to do when you're just releasing it online. Um, but yeah, the, the, the prac the more practical results came from people who watched it online and reached out you know those you know a list producers and stuff that yeah. that actually have uh it's it's interesting because i didn't think for, for facewap one of the reasons I, I released it online was because i was worried about uh not even being accepted by festivals because of the uh, legal aspects of us using um a list actors and celebrities without their consent, and right. we weren't sure that festivals would even consider us for right. that reason, reason. Because, you know, not so much for just for them not getting into trouble for for selling tickets. One right. of the things that we've that we've considered is that as long as we're not making any profit off of the short, we can't be sued for damages by those uh, celebrities. But a festival that screens the short,
1: yeah, it might be different. Yeah,
0: might be different. Yeah. So far, it's been. I I've been you know pleasantly surprised to find that festivals don't really care enough right. to even ask so right. and they've been the film has been accepted by a few and and it's been screening but that was definitely not the the the, the path that I was expecting the short to take so I released it online first and then right. I started releasing it up uh, into festivals and in retrospect there's a few festivals that might have Consider the short that didn't because it was released online,
1: yeah, um, and I think that that might be a mistake on on the festival's parts these days because um, just as you said i there is something really to be said for watching your film with an audience in a theater, and it's not just seeing it on the big screen, and hopefully you you have a great um, you know, hopefully the tech is great, and the picture looks great, and the sound is great, and it 's all the things you want because i 've had it not go that way, but i 've also had it certainly at Chinese theaters, you know seeing FTL on this massive screen in full five one and everything it sounded and looked great and it was thrilling that 's all fun, but the more important thing, and I think we were talking about this earlier is is watching a film with an audience and how seeing how they react to it and hearing how they react to it. Uh, is this treasure trove of information it's um and hopefully it's positive um but it really it changes the way you look at your own film and it makes you think about it in different ways and and i wouldn't have wanted to miss that but um certainly for short films it it is the age of the internet and all of these streamers and i think festivals might be doing themselves a disservice Um, In saying that if something's been online, it can't be submitted. I don't I think that that should change at this point. Um, Because of what you're saying, it's like, uh, you know, I think as opposed to saying, we don't want anybody to see this until we see it at our festival. It's, it's that it's a different experience to see it collectively and socially at a festival than it is online. And they're both uh, valid. For, and, and they both have pros and cons. So uh, anyway, um, I regret having spent a year, even though I love taking it to festivals, I regret the year that it wasn't online because as soon as FTL went online, a lot of things changed for me. Wow. You know. Uh, like what? Well, just uh, for the main one was was realizing that you can make something like that and uh, that the phone will ring and the phone did ring. And, and you know, um, uh, I, I'm developing the feature film version of it I it started the process of me sort of coming from Vancouver down here to Los Angeles to have several meetings about where the project could go it's leapfrogged me into other projects that I'm interested in I have been offered commercial directing opportunities there have been a bunch of things um, you know not all of which has imbe- been immediately fruitful but it's all created you know an energy uh, and opportunities that I'm developing uh, certainly and I'm hoping to be shooting my first feature uh you know within i'd like to s- st- i'd like to think i'd be i'll be doing it within the year that I'll be going to camera that's so, awesome. you know and all, all of that really comes from getting the short online starting to have conversations based on that short being online and you know it's up to now between all of the channels it's on it's well over six million views or something like that so it's uh that's been the exciting aspect of so it so
0: it's been seen
1: it's been seen yeah
0: what do you attribute to that many views uh
1: Yeah, it was really, you know, at first I put it on Vimeo, as I did with uh, The Adept, and um, it sat there for a couple days, it got a thousand hits, it got two thousand, it was doing okay, and I I really had no idea what to expect, and then um, I believe what happened was, it's a combination of things, but someone posted on Reddit might've been an even in the space channel, subreddit or something about how like, Hey, check out this, you know, short film about a faster than light mission. Uh, then what really sort of, there was a threshold It peaked, uh, where either dig.com or the website, the awesomer picked it up and said, Hey, check out this short. And at that point we had, you know, maybe two, three, four thousand hits. And then I came in one morning and it was at, you know fifty thousand then one hundred thousand then one fifty two hundred three hundred four hundred it st- it started going on this exponential curve and and um, and then attention started getting paid and then I had offers to put it up on YouTube with people like dust and then now it 's gone into the millions and
0: millions yeah. and um, dust is interesting because dust actually reached out to us as well for face swap, and uh, yeah. we were we are still considering putting it on dust, but they sent us a uh, a little bit of an alarming, uh, contract to sign. So we were like, uh-huh. uh, them <laughs> uh, to look into that. Yeah. Um, they got back and explained that it's, you know, that they're, it, you know, the, the clauses that they're, it's just like standard, uh, stuff, but it, yeah. it sounded a bit, uh, a bit uh, harsh but I, I did notice that dust has a lot of like uh shorts that that receive quite a bit of views
1: yeah well um, i'm i'm really interested in in what they're doing and i i like what they're doing i think it's smart um from the perspective of, and so maybe i'll have to go back and look at my contracts but certainly what i <laughs> what i sign with them now the adept is on there as well but both for the adept and ftl um were non-exclusive uh where they you know their benefit is they get to monetize the show but they pay you a license fee that's sort of their model right um, at least that was how what i worked with them but um, um but uh so you certainly have to recognize that there's pros and cons to doing it and it might not be for everybody i totally get that what i what i think is smart though is that they're serving an audience. With basically an independent, as an independent streamer, saying you know what, people really want science fiction, and to be a curator and to try to sort of find stuff and get it up in front of people. I think as a fan, I really like that idea.
0: Yeah, no, me too. I I think the only thing, the only issue we had a, a problem with was that um, specifically in our case, um, we want to be able to remove the short from if if we have to if we get for instance a cease and desist from right. George Clooney or, right, or Rachel right, McAdams, right. wanna be able to remove it. And and in their clause it was like we uh they said that in order to do so we have to send them some kind of a specific uh, oh, request or something. Okay. It's not something that they can So do it might be a bit it, of a but,
1: of a unique case in your uh, yeah. example because of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's uh, it's fascinating. It's actually uh, it's interesting how those things happen online. Sometimes you know you get, uh, yeah, you think you get a lot of views, and then suddenly like you know, one mention in one place, and suddenly you're you know it explodes. A different it um, really
1: it was really interesting, and I had never experienced anything like that before. And I remember because uh, I had worked uh, with the two producers on the film, uh, Todd Drew and Sarah Irvine Erickson. They're both people that I work with. Um, in Vancouver, film and TV. Uh, Sarah is a tremendous first AD and producer, and also a director. Uh, and Todd is a post producer I've worked with for years, and they produced FTL with me. Um, and I remember we ha- were having this gleeful conversation when we saw that uh, it had been viewed, I think, 180,000 times on Vimeo, and we were, you know, texting to each other. It's like we've gone viral, you know. Yeah. And we had no idea, you know, what was <laughs> what was coming. Uh, and although that was great that it had been. You know, viewed of almost two hundred thousand times. You know that it was about to go to you know six million plus was a whole other story.
0: Yeah, and you've also uh, uploaded some behind the scenes or making of sure. uh, clips and stuff. So what what makes you um, what value do you find in in doing that? Is that partially to like showcase the the technology and the skill of of the vfx crew behind it or is there anything more to it
1: yeah i think that's that is a huge part of it. it is showing it's like look at the effort that went into this but i do think also that people are really quite interested in seeing behind the curtain and i think that's why you know certainly why i used to love you know dvds and blu-rays for all the behind the scenes stuff and i think that's also great film school um So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was partly for that. We were cutting a visual effects behind the scenes reel for artifacts anyway as part of our own, as the studio reel. So we thought it would be of interest to show. I mean, and that was the whole thing with FTL is we really, um, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but uh, in in many ways, and I say this with as, as much humility as I can, like I feel like it's the victim of its own success in some ways because... Um, the whole point was to try to make it look as big and as expensive and and big scope as possible. Um, but we did this on a shoestring and we wanted to show people, like, look at what this really is. This is a small green screen stage with some picnic tables for, for NASA mission control. Right. You know, the spacecraft is our you know, actor Ty Olson sitting in a chair that we rented with some plywood around him and we built the ship around him in three D and and um you know yes it's not a great space suit, but it's the only one they had at the rental shop. The helmet didn't fit him so we had to write the helmet out, you know. Uh and we had basically two days on a green screen stage to do it all. So um you know I I think partly yes from the visual effects and technical perspective, but we also wanted to
0: show people a little peek behind the curtains. And I think I mean, you say it's a victim of its own success, but like, I don't, it doesn't cry out as like, oh, look, we're like low budget or something like that.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's, I say that only from the perspective of, you know, (laughs) I've been taken to task for things like, you know, hey, this looks great, but you know, he would never wear that kind of suit that looks really cheap, or why isn't he wearing his helmet that's not a real NASA? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, look, I appreciate all that. And certainly, if I'm doing the feature and we have time and budget to do our own production design and costume design, that right. would be fantastic. Uh, but that's, I think, When people pick apart the film, those are the kind of things they pick apart and, and, you know, a few other things, which I agree with, some I don't agree with. And that's that's fine. It's the par for the
0: course. (laughs) You're talking about internet uh, commenter, Mostly,
1: yes, exactly. Which, well, I know we're all supposed to ignore, but sometimes you don't. And (laughs) and then you have an hour of being cranky, which I've done a few times. Oh, I'm sure. Well, it's
0: um, (laughs) me too, me too. We have a lot of those. Like someone said something about... uh, Face swap, I think, because the face swap starts with this. Uh, um, uh, what do you call that? We have a uh, a text uh, title in the beginning that says a disclaimer. Right. Um, and then he says uh, the fact that so- someone basically kind of took our disclaimer and uh, I think our disclaimer says something along the lines of we are. Um, this is a social commentary made for, uh, you know, for commentary purposes only. There's sure. Yeah. Um, he's like, just because you say it's a social commentary, doesn't make it. So you're still doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well (laughs) that is your opinion. Yeah, Well,
1: exactly. And it's, you know, it's funny. I think that there's really, and I've, I've had some interesting experiences, you know, everyone says, don't read the comments and you know, there's everyone, everyone has the, their opinion and that's fine. But, um, The interesting thing I have found is there have been a few times where I have felt obligated to weigh in when someone's just been really off base. Not, you know, people have said crazy offensive racist stuff that I can't even figure out how they got to with FTL. But anyway, um, you know, when someone says something about the, the science or something doesn't work. And when I've actually entered the conversation, I've only done this once or twice. What's really interesting is how quickly that person sort of steps it back. They walk it back and they say, oh, okay, well, I didn't think about it that way because I think most people that are posting these kind of toxic comments online, uh, you know, um, really aren't thinking that there's a person on the other end of the stuff that's reading them. And as soon as they realize that, they kind of change their tune. Exactly.
0: They're like, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're someone. Yeah. And you're actually taking the time to respond to me, so I should be nice. Yeah, uh, so maybe uh, I shouldn't be
1: like a complete, you know, whatever. Um, and I, But I've had to stop myself absolutely from reading the comments. And there are thousands of comments on FTL. on Oh, Dust, I'm sure.
0: And, With you know, millions of views. You, you would yeah. yeah.
1: And there's there's some stuff that's like, yeah, sure, if we had more time, we would have done that. Or yeah, I get what you're saying there. And yes, if we had a, you know, another day to really hone performances and there's stuff as a director that I would have loved to try a different version of and there's all sorts of stuff that being said uh it doesn't matter what you do you're never going to please everybody and the internet is the greatest thing at showing that to you that there is
0: <laughs> totally i have a a few more questions i know i don't want to like, sure. take too much of your time like yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just uh ranting away but carry <laughs> <laughs> no no it's uh it's great um what i find curious or tell me how what your experience is being a uh coming out with a short film and the demographic of uh, short filmmakers is um, I'm sure it's versatile. There's a lot of people coming from different back backgrounds, but I'm not sure how many of those own VFX companies. right. Yeah. Um, I wonder what was what your experience is like you know when you go out and to festivals and and screen your film as a as a new filmmaker, quote unquote sure yeah uh, showcasing your you know skills as a director. Where you have a you know forty strong VFX shop that you're also managing at the same time, like wh- right. what's that uh, experience like? Yeah, I think generally it's
1: been really good. I mean, I think uh, for the most part, when that sort of it doesn't always necessarily come out right away. Certainly, when I was screening it at, at, at festivals, um, thankfully, I think I was. It was mostly that I was being engaged as a director, and here's the film. But then in Q and As and in conversation, it certainly does start to come out. Um, I think the reception's been mostly positive. I think... um you know, I don't know if other filmmakers think it's an unfair advantage or not. Um, I do think that it is a significant advantage. I think it's something that I can bring to the table. I think I've worked hard to have that as an asset that I can bring to the table, so I certainly don't make any bones about it. Um, I do try to be clear because it's come up certainly in co- in some conversations I've had where, you know, am I just trying to showcase visual effects or am I just trying to make stuff, you know, to show what the company can do? And the answer is absolutely not. It's certainly, it's part of it to say, hey, look, what Artifacts is capable of, but it, it to me, what I'm trying to do anyway is use what Artifacts can do as part and parcel of telling stories, um, not just being about the visual effects. Now, FTL happened to be a film that could not be made without significant visual effects, um, but it was still... The important thing to me was trying, at least, to have a cohesive story at the heart of it. Um, so, yeah, I think generally it's been received well. It's certainly... Um, Given me, I've had some interesting conversations because of it with people that have seen the film online and want to know, you know, uh, well, how would this affect a potential financial structure to put together the feature film version of it? Like, what do you bring to the table? And so I think, you know, I'm very proud of it as an asset and I think it could uh, really help uh, the development process of getting a film made.
0: Um, sort of of being of having artifacts in your of
1: having artifacts yeah Yeah. and having that you know and there's lots of great visual effects companies but what I have with artifacts because it's my company is a shorthand and a way of communicating and a knowledge of the pipeline and processes that mean that when I'm on set directing I know how things can be done you know quickly and economically and that the money uh, that it takes to make this kind of stuff can be used in the best possible ways Um, so I think to the brass tacks of it I think that that's all very helpful, and I certainly am not shy about talking about that.
0: Yeah. And do you feel uh, sometimes like kind of out of your element just because having you know been in that seat in that chair for so long of like being a business owner running yeah. a company, wa- walking in the room and and uh, and putting your strong foot forward, meaning you know talking about artifacts and and uh, and suddenly changing gears a bit and uh, and coming into similar rooms but now talking about yourself as a director versus you know, trying to shift the, the focus away from, from the company and more towards that.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, because it's true. It's like, you know, you said as a new filmmaker, and it's very true, I am a new filmmaker. So it's it's kind of weird because I've been, you know, in the film industry for a pretty long time now. Uh, but I am a new filmmaker as someone that's, uh, a, you know, a new writer-director, and I, and I recognize that. And I certainly am not shy about, you know, admitting that and being very upfront about it because, you know... If I could go back in time, I would I would I wished I was making short films like decades ago, you know, uh, but this is my path and it's kind of where I've ended up. And it's great for me because I get to be in a room with a bunch of new uh, and some established filmmakers and I get to talk about it from that perspective and happen to mention, or if it happens to come up that I have a visual effects company, that's kind of like, oh, that's cool, that's probably helpful. But it doesn't sort of, it's not the biggest part of the conversation. It's the storytelling and being filmmakers has been the bigger part, which has been great.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's awesome because, and by the way, when I said a new filmmaker, it's because short films are usually con- um being perceived as a filmmaker's um step to a initial directing, steps absolutely directing yeah. a feature. Not necessarily yeah. that it's a new filmmaker. I mean yeah. uh Scorsese just made a short film. Right. He's yeah. not a new filmmaker. Yeah. Obviously. And uh and you've been on so many productions before that, so you're not a new filmmaker. You just but I guess you, I, in, I, in many in respects the, I
1: think I am. I think that's just true.
0: Uh yes you um, in the director chair. Absolutely like, yeah, absolutely in, in that respect. Yeah. But I think that uh or at least uh i'm 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 assuming that the the conversation where while it's naturally shifting to to talking about films because you are in those forums and surrounded by people who want to know about the film uh in those respects um for you it's a new conversation or it's a new uh angle to to sit on to look at things from um and uh and at the same time, you're still running the company. So you still have meetings, you know, pitch meetings where, where you're absolutely. trying to get the next project yeah. as a VFX house. So that must be a bit, or at least I, I have the experience from my end, that it can be a bit uh, confusing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or at least taxing on your on, your, on your mind. It's like, yeah, you well, have to shift I'm,
1: gears. There's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Do you have any uh, any tips on how to do that properly or is it just kind of like... <laughs> well, you know what's uh, funny is
1: um, I r uh, I've, I've had a very recent experience with this because certainly in my head, I mean, a big part of what I'm trying to push forward with is the writing and directing and filmmaking, um, as we've been talking about. But yeah, I still have to bring new work in and pitch for new work at Artifacts on the visual effects side. And just a few weeks ago... Um, Uh, what's been interesting is I think partly part part of what's afforded my ability to keep them somewhat distinct and working concurrently and not having issues is that so much of our work at Artifacts over the past number of years has been as one uh, one studio on a multi-vendor project. So we haven't been pitching the projects. We've just had a production side visual effects supervisor or producer say, hey, um, we'd love to send you guys some shots to bid on. There are three other shops working on this because, you know, by nature, of all these shows have gone so big. Right. So, you know, that's been great in many respects for us at Artifacts because we've just essentially received shot lists and we've bid them out and the work has come in and we have not been involved uh, on pitching, on being part of production, which has its pros and its cons. That being said, recently... Um, uh, I was called about coming in to pitch for us to do everything. And I found myself, you know, pitching for a director. And it's actually been a while. And um, I, I guess the long story short is when I was in that room doing that, it was, uh, I was, my director, writer sort of had that stuff was just it disappeared. It, you know, I was just sort of back in the seat of doing the job for the time yeah. that was needed. Uh, and so, um I guess, you know, uh,
0: it's just by necessity. You're sort of de- dealing with what you have to. Did you feel like after doing the, after having the experience of directing, um, you've learned things that you can then sort of pra- put into practice in the other, in, in the, you know, business?
1: Without of- question. And it's, it's got, it's got its good and its bad. For argument's sake, I was in another meeting and we were pitching for a show and, um, and, uh, Having had experience now and, and hoping to gain more experience uh, being in the chair and directing and writing and figuring out story and all that kind of stuff, um, I can be less forgiving uh, sometimes of, you know, when I'm looking at a project or I'm reading a script to break it down and I, and I think something doesn't work with story logic. I used to not even think about that stuff. I used to sort of flip through the pages and go oh that's a green screenshot oh that's going to need rig removal or whatever and now I'm like that character wouldn't do that <laughs> or right. whatever and you know it's easier to be critical which isn't always fair necessarily so when I'm in a meeting and I'm pitching and a director is saying I want to do this that and the other thing in my head sometimes I'm like well do you really want to do that that just seems like spectacle but of course I'm not going <laughs> to say that Right. Um, so it, I think I think my brain has opened up in new ways from that perspective where I used to purely think about it as a service and now I'm sort of, you know, uh, I've I've got certainly some story head in in all my meetings now.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's um, I guess the, I mean, I have the same experience too. Like as a, having been in the in the director's chair and and then uh, kind of working with directors, I always like, you know, are you sure you want to do this? are you, yeah. is that really important for the story? You know, yeah. how much is. Uh, you always like kind of uh, have another another way of thinking about things, Absolutely. as opposed to uh, to uh, just servicing, you know, whatever's on the page. Um, and also sometimes you're like, well, are we even going to see this thing on screen? Is, or is the camera going to be something uh, somewhere else in in that moment? So you can always kind of think about those uh, uh, those issues or those challenges in a new way. Sure. Um, I was in a position where as a director I worked with a VFX company that um that gave me notes about how to shoot scenes and I was not happy with those notes honestly right. um because they felt from that they they felt like they came from the point of like simplifying post and as opposed to making the film work so
1: yeah but right. it's um I think visual effects companies can get stuck between a rock and a hard place a lot and, and I believe me I appreciate exactly what you're saying. I if I put myself and you know not knowing the exact situation right. of that, but I <laughs> I can tell you that I've been in situations where uh, I have read a script and have provided a breakdown for visual effects. And the director has said, "I want to do this, that, and the other thing." And then you get a quiet call from the producer on on the other side that says, "We only have X amount of money, so the director can say that, but here's what we're doing, and you need to make sure that you're clear with the director that it needs to be shot this way." Yeah. And I find I don't agree with that method of of uh, administering that relationship because I think um, it's that's not that really shouldn't be my job to do. That's the producer's job, to right? Do. Um, and so for me to sort of try to um, you know, uh, uh, stop a director from being able to do what they're trying to conceive and not really giving valid reason for it other than it's going to make my life simpler is wrong. I, I That's a very tricky uh, place to be. In.
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I totally see that. And I, and I feel like if I was in the same position as that company at the time, yeah. knowing what their budget was, because I know what the budget was. Sure, yeah. I probably wouldn't have taken the project to begin with. <laughs> yeah. But even but if I had to, you yeah. know, if it was like part of a bigger uh deal, which which it probably was in that yeah. case, yeah, I would uh you know, I I would probably handle communication a little bit differently. It's it's the you ultimate like,
1: of, of importance. Yeah. yeah. Communication
0: you know. I think is like the, the key to everything. Really. Everything. Um I guess before we leave, uh, before we uh, wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask you if you had uh, a chance to go back or uh, either give yourself some kind of piece of advice, um, you know, 20 years ago or just to people who are who are maybe in similar shoes now where they're in post-production, maybe they own a studio and are hoping to branch out and to become directors or something else. What would be your you know, number one uh, advice or realization having gone through that step of like doing stuff on the side?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think
0: the biggest thing,
1: and uh, I, I think about this a fair bit, If I could go back in time, I would tell myself years ago to start uh, making stuff as quickly as possible and be, be willing to fail and to make. And, you know, you hear this a lot, you know, that success is about, you know, just going at it and failing because the failures are what sort of inform your successes and just try to make as much stuff as you can. I think in filmmaking, it is ultimately important because, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to figure out who you are as a filmmaker without making films and making films is is a hard thing to do um, So, but if you start young and you don't you don't sort of worry about what people are going to think about it you just make stuff I think that's huge for someone that's already sort of in in position you know let's say you know someone that's in post or you know has a career already um, I think it can be trickier I think you basically have to make a decision that you need to be prepared to carve out personal time to pursue something and that it's certainly not going to be easy. But I think it's like anybody else that has, you know, that has a job that's doing their day gig or whatever that wants to write, that wants to direct. I mean, it's the same thing. Um, you know, uh, you just got to find that time to make stuff and then figure out how to shoot it. So, um, I don't know if I have any great advice other than if you're, you know, uh, if you're younger that you should just get out there and make stuff and find people to work with and collaborate with and you know and just try to keep your passion up and, and don't lose the passion in servicing other people's projects which can be easy to do if you're in post-production you know right that's good advice and uh, do you have kids by the way I do Yes. What? What? How many? And what? <laughs> so I've got two kids. I've got uh, two amazing kids. Uh, my daughter Maddie is in high school. She's 15, and my wow. son. My son's actually just graduated uh, from high school. So I'm. I'm aging myself or dating myself now. But he. Uh, <laughs> he's. A, he's great. He actually uh, is. Uh, you know, we're we're in Vancouver, we're in Canada. So he was trying to figure out what to do. He loves. He's really creative, and he's great with music and video and all that kind of stuff. And and has been trying I wonder to where out. that comes from. <laughs> well, you know, he would, I think he would say it's, you know, uh, he's trying to forge his own path. So I'm trying to be very careful. Not, <laughs> right, know, not to take credit yeah, for his, not to uh, take credit for anything at all. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, we've, we've exposed him to a lot of stuff, which I certainly wish I had more exposure when I was younger, but he, he loves it. He's going to be going to Ryerson and studying, uh, uh, media, pro- the media production program in Toronto, which is cool. Nice. And, um, yeah. And, uh, so they're great. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think, you it know. It's going to be tough to be away from, you know, he's going to be in Toronto and yeah. In Vancouver. Yeah, I'm going to have to be going back and forth a lot now. So uh, that's okay. I, I have
0: friends and family in Toronto. <laughs> and for as a, as a, someone who's uh, about to be uh, a dad myself. Yes, congratulations. Have any, any, any great piece of advice yeah. of being able to do all of that. <laughs> all that amazing impossible things that you've done yeah. over the last uh, few you know years <laughs> while also being a parent Um, yeah just get sleep whenever you can (laughs) and you know I'm I'm,
1: I'm very good I'm a big proponent of pharmaceuticals I have no issue with them so um,
0: from the perspective what kind of coffee do you uh,
1: drink you know lots of coffee in the morning and if you know you need to take something or have a glass of wine at night that's okay no you know what I I love being a dad and it's uh, it's been a tremendous experience so far and hope it continues and it's you find the energy and you know you just keep moving along everybody figures out that they don't know how they did it but they do it and
0: you know you're you're about to be very tired though, but I'm sure you That's, know that. Uh, yeah, so I've heard it's <laughs> yeah. okay, I've been tired before I'm, I'm sure it's a different kind of tire ty- of being tired, but yeah uh, yeah, you know, it's a little foggy, but it's okay, you get through <laughs> it. <laughs> um finally if people want to find uh find out a little bit more about you and they want to watch your film is there any like social media presence you want to shout out or sure yeah
1: so um i am on twitter at a l stern a l s t e r n um and i've got a personal website up at adam l um, and then there's the visual effects company's artifacts and that's artifacts
0: great yeah and you have both films are available online on YouTube, right?
1: Yeah, they're both available online on YouTube and Dust. If actually the easiest way is probably if you go to adamlstern.com, there's links to both films, uh, both on Vimeo and on YouTube via Dust. Yeah
0: and for us, we're going to be looking out for the next uh, project, the feature film that... Uh, yeah, that's that's
1: the hope. So You probably can't
0: say much about it, but if you want to... You know,
1: well, it's. A, uh, I think it's a pretty cool... I'm really, really happy with this script. I feel like it's the most uh, developed uh, property I have so far, and I think it's an exciting grounded sci-fi thriller, a bit of a love story as well, and uh, I'm really excited to make it, so we'll see how things go.
0: And the key, we didn't touch it, we, we spoke about it a bit earlier, the key to that like the next kind of step was to try to keep it contained and make it producible. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I'd love to make FTL as the feature that I envision. I think that that's sort of potentially a much bigger project. So this new one, which is called levels uh, at least currently is uh, designed to be able to be shootable as a grounded locations based uh, project with some stage work that can be done for uh, you know a reasonable low budget, uh, but
0: still be an exciting story to tell. And you're going to shoot it in, in Vancouver? That's currently the plan, yeah. I mean, that's awesome. I think Vancouver, I, I remember the first time I've heard about Vancouver was um, through X-Files. Cause yeah, sure. I was a big X-Files fan. Yeah. Uh, it's it's exciting to hear that you've been a part of that uh, amazing Very, show. very
1: small part, but yeah, happy to have, have and, been.
0: To. Uh, I remember X-Files being like Sometime, some, sometime back then, in the context of the X Files being shot in Vancouver, that's how I found out about Vancouver, and I was like, "Well, okay, that, that's an amazing, beautiful place to yeah. to shoot films at." So
1: it really is; it's great. I mean, the only the problem with it now, and I was talking to somebody else about this, and I could I could wax on about this, so I won't. I will just say, uh, what's great about Vancouver is it's beautiful and how much of a film uh, center it's become. What's not great about Vancouver? Uh, as an indie filmmaker is it's so busy that it's not actually easy to shoot there anymore oh. so that's there's been a bit of a threshold with that that's changed um, you know that being said uh, I would I would take the fact that there's tons of experienced people and great talent there uh, over the fact that it might be a little harder now to put it all together because
0: you know, y- you know you have the talent pool to draw from which is the most important thing. That's great well I wish you best of luck and thank, thank you, you again for being on the podcast. Pleasure yeah thanks awesome. David
1: and best of luck to for- you and all your projects it's uh, exciting times thanks Yeah.
0: and that was it episode 18 of the post post podcast with adam stern i hope you guys enjoyed it and found it inspiring if you did don't forget to subscribe like and share this podcast with your friends My next guest will be Colin Levy. He's a former Pixar layout artist who directed a few shorts for the Blender organization and has his own sci-fi short, Skywatch, uh, just about to be finished and released to festivals. So we'll be talking to him. And until then, keep being inspired.